What's up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode. I'm here with my man, Moji Karimi, co-founder, CEO, and chief futurist at Sembita. Moji, welcome to the show. Uh, how's everything in your world, man? All good. Thanks for having me, Justin. Really appreciate it. Good, good. I uh, I noticed actually on LinkedIn, cruising through there, you were in D.C. recently. Uh, you, you either just came back or maybe you're still there. How? What were you doing up there and how was that? Yeah, well, I used to think that, you know, if you have good science and good technology, uh, all good things would just happen and it would just speak for itself. And as I grow older, I'm realizing the the bigger picture. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as part of that, we're playing more of a proactive role in educating, uh, influencing, uh, participating with policymakers. Especially, there is a lot of fluid, uh, fluid um, discussions right now around uh, CCUF and 45Q credits. Uh -huh. uh, specifically, the the issue that I was advocating for is about this uh, CCU Parity Act, which is basically if today you capture one ton of CO2 and you store it on the ground, you get $85 in tax credits. Uh, but if you were to utilize it, you get $60. Uh -huh. And so people are incentivized to store the CO2 as opposed to utilize it. And it indirectly is kind of uh, imposing a tax penalty for CO2 utilization. So um, we're trying to fix that and make it at least parity so that um, it's a you know fair uh, playing ground both for CO2 sequestration and CO2 utilization. Of course, both are important, but... Um, you know, sequestration, as you know, it's uh, TRL9, something the industry's been doing for a long time, whereas utilization as a nascent industry needs more help and support to, to grow. Oh, wow. So you were up there, obviously, like representing Semvita, or were you more just independent, trying to get with policymakers and, and get in with the right people? Or, how, I mean, because that seems like an awful lot of, of effort and a lot of time spent to try and, you know, move the needle. Yeah, so they do these things, it's called the Hill Day, where um, a different kind of companies that are in the same category, like for for this, it was other CO2 utilization companies, we just kind of team up uh, together. And there's different coalitions that will help us facilitate meetings with representatives, Congress people, senators, and um, then we'll go meet them and just kind of express the the need for this change that needs to happen mm -hmm. and what is the, the logic behind it, you know? And and really, a lot of times they, they just don't know as much about, well, how this certain policy impacts certain companies or sometimes there's some uh, unintended consequences. So if, if you don't go there and speak up and let them know about, you know, the impact on jobs, on like technology, on U.S.'s position in terms of, um, uh, either national security issues or technology adoption, 
um, then they don't know. So it's it's about advocating. And but this one was more of a team work. Other times, when I go there about once a quarter, it's it could be more specific uh, meetings, kind of a one on one, more directly just representing Sambita. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by 10X Technologies, pushing the boundaries of chemistry. 10X is innovating the future of the oil and gas industry with their proprietary materials-based technology solutions. With cutting-edge products like NanoClear, custom-designed nanofluids engineered to maximize the production of new completions and rejuvenate existing wells, 10X is driving a revolution in oil extraction. Meet Microhold, a specially engineered microparticle slurry that optimizes frac efficiency, props microfracs, and triggers far-field diversion every well, every time sees the benefits. And if you're worried about frac hits, 10X has you covered with no hit, an innovative technology that mitigates frac hits via in-situ pressurization reaction. It's protection where you need it most. Then there's Sandbond, a sand consolidation chemical solution that's just another example of 10X's commitment to practical field-ready solutions. And let's not forget about Seroflow, a greener, cost-effective, proprietary blend of design materials to banish paraffin issues once and for all. That's 10X, where innovation meets application in the oil and gas industry. Find out more about their groundbreaking solutions at pumpmoreoil.com and be on the lookout for five, yeah, you heard it, five new products launching soon. Now, let's get back to the show. Gotcha. No, that's awesome, man. It's it's nice to see folks from from our sort of sandbox have a voice up in that part of the world because um, it goes a long ways and and uh man I, I commend you and and the team for for doing that uh kind of switching gears here a little bit i mean although your your current day-to-day uh with regards to what you do and in Samvita, they're, they're vastly different than mine per se but we share some things in common which i didn't know until looking through it but uh I noticed you spent a good chunk of your career in the drilling space up until about 2015 uh, in, in oil and gas. My career has been built around, you know, drilling wells. I started in 2004 on a drilling rig. Um, but uh, how did, I mean, talk about a little bit the transition because going from that, like you worked in uh, casing drilling and, and I saw you graduated uh, in drilling engineering. Um, again, which is vastly different than what you do now. And so like talk a little bit about the pivot and then we'll get uh, into some uh, some of the topics that you're more involved with now. Yeah. So the short version of it is yes, I did uh, you know petroleum engineering and more focused on drilling. Uh, my first job was at a company called Tesco. I was kind of a casing drilling research engineer. Then I went to Weatherford. I did um, solid expandable systems, managed pressure drilling, uh, yeah. drilling liner. Uh, I spent hours just looking at the shell shaker, getting samples. Uh, I was doing this specific research about understanding the particle size distribution for like lot circulation material and yeah. how that helps. Uh, so, you know, a few years there, even got really deep into the case in drilling. I co-authored a chapter for IADC drilling manual on case in drilling. No way. And I got an advice from someone, you know, that's like, you know, you could go become really an expert in one area, but at the same time, I had this itch of like being more, um, kind of holistic in, in like learning about other things that you don't know about. I, I enjoy the process of learning, you know? Um, so I started to get involved in, uh, other aspects. That's when I kind of moved from casing drilling to uh, managed pressure drilling, other uh, techniques, and then from there expanded to, you know, drilling product line management, 
asking questions about what's the business model for the product line for the company. And through that whole thing, I got more involved in the startups and thinking of, okay, there, there's the big company version of this, but there's benefits for, uh, you know, added agility, innovation that sometimes big companies are just not perfectly set up to, to do. Mm -hmm. And I got interested in, um, the startups. And then through that, the, there was a chapter that was about, um, you know, software, uh, for oil and gas, but then from there. I had this opportunity to join a company that wanted to commercialize DNA sequencing yeah. in oil and gas. And this was basically three people, uh, that had the idea, they've raised some money and they needed someone in Houston. Um, the way they presented to me, they said, we're looking for someone like a hustler on the ground who work in the service industry, uh, who knows enough people to open some doors to, to go try this out, you know? And, and I thought that was fascinating. Um, I wanted to, it's like, I like DNA sequencing and this whole biotech thing, cause it's a good learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, and just the, the topic itself, which is fascinating. Like what, what is DNA sequencing has to do with oil and gas, you know? Um, and so I, I ended up joining them, uh, as their first employee in Houston, first PD manager. And, um, through that, uh, we commercialized DNA sequencing in oil and gas looking at DNA of microbes in the water, oil, rock, building this kind of a 23andMe type maps for the subsurface. Yeah. Um, to move that data source next to, you know, geochemistry and tracer data and logs, uh, at the time it was used for, uh, optimizing the wall spacing. Um, but then through that, I learned more about biotech because the main investor was Illumina, which is a really big DNA sequencing company. I mean, Illumina is the reason that DNA sequencing is, is affordable. I mean. Yeah. They build these big high throughput machines. And then from there, um, that eventually led to Samvita, uh, because my co-founder Tara, who's also my sister was, um, that's her background is biotech and through Biota, the, uh, DNA sequencing startup, I learned a bit about that. So we started talking more and eventually landed on Samvita. So the point is, it wasn't like an aha moment or anything like right. that. It was kind of a continuous, uh, sequence of events that just kind of aligned. Wow. No, that's, it's fascinating. Actually, I interviewed, so uh, when I was podcasting for oil and gas global network, I inter interviewed a gentleman from biota and this was like very early days. This might've been like 2019. I'm drawing a blank on the gentleman's name. He was in sales. Um, I don't know if he was here in Houston, but, uh, oh, he was Cooper. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but man, what if I had not, I mean, until sort of doing some research and looking into it before interviewing him, I was blown away on, on like the technology and what they were doing to try and understand or characterize reservoirs and stuff like that. Um, it was, it was fascinating. And then it was, and then at that point in oil and gas, there was really this like huge emergence of like just interesting tech and people from like outside of Texas. Oklahoma, Louisiana, that were like coming into the space from like California and like New York and like just, and then Austin emerged as this like huge oil and gas tech. And so it's been a, such a cool ride. And clearly you're able to, you're, you're living and breathing in that now, uh, with Semvita and, and just the unique approach to solve a lot of these problems that we have in energy. And so it leads me to my next question. Um, Moji is. Do you have any core beliefs that you've changed your mind on 
over around energy over the last several years or since you've transitioned into sort of this new space? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, because I think uh, it's like, a, so you have certain beliefs, but then as, as you get more data, you know, and, and the cards get played in terms of what is possible, what's going to take longer, you have to take that into consideration too, right? And, and see, okay, uh, with this new data, what do you think is possible? So, um, for me personally, uh, when we started Samvita, um, you know, in kind of 2017, 2018, um, we had this idea around if, if there's an industry around carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, carbon neutralization, why isn't it that oil and gas companies are leading that? You know, and, and, um, that was a question for me. Uh, I, I did actually a presentation, uh, in the TPH, uh, innovation conference. It's still online 2018 about this. Um, and, um, since then you saw this thing happen where, for example, at the time I was using the example of why is it that carbon engineering has developed this direct air capture and not like an Exxon or Chevron. What right. didn't happen now? Well, Oxy invested and it eventually bought that. So it became an Oxy-led initiative also to, to scale it up, right? Um, so in, in kind of in view of innovation, there's some of that uh, leading in as opposed to letting the cars play out and then kind of joining, which is you, you see some of that happening in real time. So I, I believed in the carbon capture neutralization as something that oil and gas should really lead. So mm -hmm. you see that happening now. Um, some of the other things that it was a bit of an education for me as well was around um, the role that in, in this kind of diversification of energy sources and, and energy transition, how fast can we actually scale up some of the renewables, uh, some of the limitations uh, that we're going to run into, which are physical limitations with the amount of, for example, lithium and nickel and, and copper that could be supplied and mined, uh, within that time frame to allow for electrification, battery, you know, energy storage. And, um, actually those led to some of what we do at Sunvita to solve certain issues. Um, but I like to think of myself as, uh, I come from oil and gas, of course, in, in drilling background. Lot of, lots of respect for the industry and I, I am in the industry, but also, um, I try to understand, you know, like I went to New York climate week two weeks ago, just to try to understand what is the, the view from others who are not in the industry. Uh, I go to South by Southwest for the same reason, you know, yeah. and just sit down. If it's a presentation, I, like I love those that like environmentalists or discussions around climate justice. Uh, and it kind of trying to absorb that and also to, to be a voice for the industry, uh, in a sense that people have a certain perception, but the reality is you have a lot of millennials who are not babies anymore and have like 10, 15 years of experience yeah. and are taking up leadership positions with different companies. And, uh, they, they do think differently than the previous generation, but, um, we don't have a lot of, um, like our, our voice is not the one that is what people think about. They still think about the, the older kind of generation and, and view of oil and gas that doesn't like as much change. And that's just not true. Yeah. So 
as I go through my own kind of journey and learning, uh, I every opportunity I try to also be an advocate for the industry and Houston yeah. and paint this different picture. Yeah, no, that's that's a super healthy approach. I was talking to actually this morning talking uh, to a gentleman from London who manages uh, Slumberjay's branding and or SLB's branding, and uh, it was fascinating because we were talking about just the messaging and sort of like you said, like the generation who's coming up and now into these leadership roles and how important it is for, you know, traditional energy to rebrand and communicate in a way that like positively impacts the generation, the upcoming generation. And so my question to you is going to Climate Week and South by Southwest, which is super cool. You obviously have an innate curiosity for just consuming and, and understanding and learning more but would you say the people that you've spoken to are, are you starting to see an increase uh degree of open-mindedness towards at least trying to understand what oil and gas does and how it impacts the rest of the world or just energy i mean are you starting to see conversations change a little bit with yeah. those who otherwise may have just been like no i don't want anything to do with it Absolutely. And it's so tangible compared to just a few years ago. I mean, um, when we were pitching for our own Series A, um, like two years ago, we talked to investors out of New York or, or California, and uh, they were excited about the tech. But when the conversation got to this point of saying, well, and, and we're based in Houston, there was a bit of like, oh, okay, you know, in, in a way that they, they, they were not big fans. You know, they, they were probably rather if we're closer to them, like New York or, or California. This time around for our Series B, that is welcomed and they love it because they understand, oh, so you could actually build these things and you're, you have access to infrastructure and the, the big companies that know how to scale these things up. Yeah. And that's really the key is scaling, building is really this next phase that needs to happen. And, um, people at the industry are the ones who have that knowledge and expertise and background. So that, that has created this dialogue, um, with the industry in Houston and financiers, innovators uh, from all, all sorts of backgrounds, um, and, and geographies to have yeah. the coming round. Um, so that is happening. The other thing that I've noticed is, is interesting is, uh, when you go to you know, like South by Southwest or in climate week, the, the, the discussion is around climate tech. Like that's what they, they call the category of climate tech. Whereas here we talk about energy transition and interesting the the difference in the terminology, um, where, because the, the important thing about energy transition is the moment that instead of talking just about climate change or climate tech, you start talking about energy transition, it starts to become technical. Uh, like then you have to know, well, what is the mix now? What does it need to get to? How do we get there? How do we build these things, you know, and capital projects, infrastructure, and that's really exciting. And we need both, right? Because the climate change conversation, climate tech speaks to the why, whereas energy transition is about the how, you know, and, and, um, for me personally, I, I like to sit in, in between, you know, you know, kind of absorbing the why 
um, we have our own beliefs, but also uh, around the world, how it has viewed. Like I'm going to COP28 for the same reason, just to see from even higher level, like what, what are the conversations and to have a voice when, when there's a chance, but also really deep in, uh, into like, how do we actually do these things and build this, this plants, you know, for decarbonization, for CCUS, for energy transition in general. Yeah, no, that's, it's the, the conversations are certainly changing. Um, again, I live, you know, in the, in the drilling world, but just even the conversations I've had with folks, all, you know, throughout, you know, I had a fascinating conversation with a gentleman, uh, from, uh, Scotland and he's involved with hydrogen, which I want to talk a little bit, cause I noticed in, in some of your content, you were talking about gold hydrogen, which is the first time I've heard of that, but, uh. Uh, again, it's, it's these platforms and, and that's these conversations that hopefully are helping change the mindsets of a lot of people. Um, I, I'm really curious on, on Simvita, uh, would you mind describing sort of the, and, and perhaps it was before your time, but kind of the origin story there and then what kind of initiatives that you guys have or business that you guys conduct that, that are really moving the needle to help, uh, you know, again, move the energy industry forward. Sure, happy to. Um, so with Sambita and, and going back to what you were saying earlier about the branding and messaging for the industry, um, I'm really hoping that we could use this platform of Sambita as an example of what the future of the industry could look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what I believe in is that there's going to be, uh, this by the way goes into this kind of obsession that I have with like future and, uh, you know, foresight and futurism, um, because at the end of the day, when you're in a, a startup business, it's about making bets, right? What mm -hmm. people are going to yeah. need in the future and therefore, what do you need to build today, right? To be well positioned. So, um, basically I, I think that here in the course of next kind of five, 10, 15 years, there's going to be a new category of companies that they would not call themselves an oil and gas company or a mining company. They right. will be a natural resource company. Um, and some of that you already see happening in a sense of, you know, Estatol became Equinor, others like dropping the oil, adding energy instead, right? So this is kind of an extension of that. And I think it's, it's more um, uh, broad and it should be because at the end of the day, all that these companies are doing is extracting uh, their feedstock from nature, whether if it's hydrocarbons or if it's minerals in a mine, right? And then doing other processes to get that to that end format that makes life possible, chemicals, fuels, and everything else. And the, the next question is, well then, who are going to be the winners in that category? And I think the winners are gonna be those who could figure out how to, um, Produce the same product at a cost that could compete, right? With the, with the incumbent, but with the minimal carbon and environmental footprint. Because if you could do that, naturally people are just gonna pick that option, you know, as opposed to paying more. If your product is the same price, but has this environmental benefits, right? Yeah. And for us at Rambita, we're making a bet that industrial biotech is one of the engines of enabling that natural resource company of the future that could bring the cost down, but also have those environmental and carbon benefits. So that's the whole, the whole thesis. And then happy to get into 
what that has translated into in terms of the specific applications that we're doing now and the plan for uh, commercializing those. No, I, I think it's really important to talk about those. And so I look, you know, through your website, you have three main business lines, the ECO2, gold, hydrogen, and I think it's called Endolith. Um, yeah. Would you mind just briefly describing what those are? Sure. So the first one is CO2 conversion, right? And that's that's our core business. That's where we started with CO2 conversion. Basically using microbes that eat the CO2 as well as other carbon waste. Uh, and then turn that into other chemicals and fuels. But really the, the platform that we have is these microbes, when they grow, basically their their cell the weight in the, their body could be 30%, 30% to 50% or even more uh, oil or lipids in, the, hmm. in their body, basically. When we extract that, it actually looks quite similar to soybean oil. Huh. So that soybean oil is what is used today to make biodiesel, to make sustainable aviation fuel, to be used as a bio-nafta, right? Yeah. Um, and when you think about it, it's like, okay, uh, the world needs all of those things, but there is also an environmental limitations to having more soybean oil. You know, uh, you, you, you can't get up and say, well, I'll have to have hundred times more fields of soybean tomorrow. That doesn't scale that way. And then you still have the land use, water use, fertilizer use, all those issues. And so that has led to this issue around, um, you know, why we don't have more uh, sustainable aviation fuel today, right? So case in point, we have a big partnership with United Airlines. We just that's announced. Solid. Yeah, Congrats. and that's for, thanks. That's for 1 billion gallons of um, sustainable aviation fuel that will supply to them across 20 years. And wow. this is the core of that technology is to get to that, basically humans being able to produce the same uh, renewable feedstock through the soybean oil alternative that does not link to agriculturally drive soybean oil. So that's the CO2 conversion business. Then we have gold hydrogen. Gold hydrogen is, is near and dear to my heart because of my background in, in oil and gas and also for what I did before with the DNA sequencing company. Mm. Basically, we go to depleted oil and gas reservoirs and introduce a package of microbes and nutrients. And those microbes basically eat through the unrecovered oil and in a process similar to dark fermentation, produce hydrogen and CO2. Uh, the CO2 we, we re-inject and then we produce the hydrogen. And we call that gold hydrogen because we had this era of, you know, oil being the black gold. Okay. And now we're saying, okay, well, what if we could actually influence, like we could still use the oil as a feedstock, like a natural subsurface feedstock, but turn that into something else that is, is of uh, more of a demand. And, you know, mm -hmm. hydrogen is, is one of those molecules. Um, so it's, it's basically turning the reservoir into a bioreactor. Mm. Therefore, we don't have to build one on surface. And leveraging that natural temperature, pressure uh, profile that exists in the subsurface and doing subsurface biomanufacturing um, because we're, we're already storing gases, of course, CO2, but also ethylene uh, in this hydrogen in the subsurface. 
this is just going one step further and saying, can we actually produce what we want in the subsurface in ways is like integrating upstream with downstream. Um, and especially important because we go after, uh, basically old water floods. This is our for conventionals, right? Old water floods where the industry has already done, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary, but there is still that 20, 40, 50 more percent that is unrecovered. Yeah. And new microbes as just like a small chemical plant agent that could go and use the oil as the feedstock. So that's gold hydrogen. And then the third one, just to really close the loop is, um, the division we have for mining and metals. And so that's microbes that could extract basically the metals from the ore, especially we have a focus on copper. So this is for copper, they call it bio leaching, um, especially uh -huh. for low grade ore in copper. Uh, that one was a bit of a surprise to me when I learned that the mining industry was already doing that at a scale. Yeah. Um, actually about 15% of the world copper today is produced using microbes with bioleaching. Mm. Um, but this, the companies, they're not using, you know, the most optimized and efficient microbes using the latest and the greatest of biotech. Right. So that's what we help them with, uh, for copper. And then we have a program for lithium for a bio extraction of lithium from mm. lithium clay, which is different than the brine, which is where 80% of lithium is produced. Uh, in the U.S., we have this deposit of uh, lithium clay uh, that goes from Oregon to, uh, you know, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. That's where you have uh, lithium Americas, Arizona lithium. Tesla has uh, acreage in the, in the same uh, uh, deposit. Uh, but no one knows really how to extract lithium from clay. And, um, uh, what they plan to do is to use the same thing with other metals, which is to use sulfuric acid and, okay. uh, sulfuric acid, um, is kind of like using a, a hammer. It just takes everything out. Like you get a lot of sodium, potassium, and post-processing is a bit of an issue as well as, you know, 40% of the capex of building out these plants is to build a sulfuric acid plant. And so it's a huge part of the operation. And we eliminate that altogether, uh, with these microbes that do bio extraction that are more selective, just to lithium and leave, uh, the other, uh, impurities behind. So that's bio mining. That division is based in Denver. The rest, uh, CO2 and uh, gold hydrogen are in Houston. Man, that's crazy. These are some badass little microbes you got running around, man. <laughs> They are, they're some are extremophiles as, as they call them. They've learned how to evolve doing these crazy things. And wow. now we have the tools to actually understand them and then to control them. Um, you know, so, yeah. To, so educate me a little bit, like, where do these microbes come from? Like, do you build them in a lab or do you, are they like found naturally or like how, and maybe that's proprietary. I don't know, but like high level, how, how do you, like, where do you get these things from? So this is where it gets fun. Uh, we do this thing called bioprospecting. Um, we have a bioprospecting team in okay. our company. Basically they go out in nature and find these microbes and, and take samples and we'll bring them, we isolate them. We have our own library of these microbes. Let's say, um, 
if we need a microbe that could uh, survive in, in low pH or high pH, there is maps that, you know, what, what lakes have what pH? And then uh, sample, and then going to come across some of those microbes that have learned how to evolve in, in that condition, right? Mm. Um, but once we, this is not the kind of the proprietary part, but once we get them, we have to do certain optimization, um, uh, both for the nutrients, uh, understanding the genome, um, and uh, really optimizing around the function that we want them to have. And that's where our scientists, you know, microbiologists, molecular biologists, genetic engineers apply uh, some of the tools that we develop ourselves to, to get the yield and productivity and function for the microbes to, to the intended uh, goal. Um, it's a bit of a new field uh, in that a lot of the legacy of the work that has been done is around um, yeast and E. coli. Right, that's the ones that people know. It's used extensively, breweries everywhere else. Right. But these microbes that we're talking about, they they don't just eat sugar to make alcohol. They could eat CO two to make lipids. They could survive in high pH, low pH. And I would say one thing that I'm really proud of in our company is we're kind of pioneering this field of in situ de deployment of microbes and knowing how they're going to behave and how to control them and wow. how to get them to have a certain function, whether if it's in the reservoir, in the subsurface, or if it's in a mine, in a heap leach. And it's quite complex because there's a lot of other microbes there. I'm sure you know already about the SRBs uh, in oil and gas that produce H2S. Yeah. Uh, that causes corrosion, right? Uh, that's why we have a lot of the legacy in oil and gas around microbiology is to kill microbes with biocide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do it all the time with drilling fluids, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so these are, these are the good microbes, you know, and to be honest, it's a bit of a surprise to me why this is not a bigger thing already. Uh, because if you think about, uh, I've said this before, like natural gas is called that it's because it's a natural product and there's a lot of cases, it's microbes that make it called methanogens. Yeah. Um, these are the same microbes that are inside the belly of a cow. That's how they make methane. These are the same microbes or the cousins that are inside the anaerobic digester that is used to make renewable natural gas, uh, RNG. And uh -huh. uh, those things are being integrated into legacy oil and gas day after day. I mean, BP bought RKO Energy. Yeah. A lot of other companies are really investing heavily on renewable natural gas, um, other bioenergy, um, and uh, it's a new field. So... You know, biology has arrived um, for oil and gas, definitely, but energy transition more broadly. Yeah. Well, I would imagine, like you said, you're surprised that it hasn't really taken off or maybe is more, uh, is just more present in what we do on, on the oil and gas side or just in general. Like it, it clearly, there's a lot there, but it's, I mean, it's like you said, it's new. It's kind of abstract, right? Like unless you have some idea of microbiology, you kind of think my, like, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, which is why I think what we're doing is super important is like educating. Um, and, mm -hmm. and because I, I bet like that you mentioned some of the team that you have working for you are like super sure. smart, highly educated in the lab, like uh, just, you know, at, at, a, at a level that surpasses most people. Like, how do you, like, how do you plan on scaling the message to where you can 
get more attention, more support? Because I'd imagine there's some pretty big limiters that you find or some challenge or headwinds um, that I guess kind of inhibit your ability to scale. And for this thing, for everyone just to run at you and throw money at you, you'd be like, we know this is the right answer. Like, how do you kind of plan on overcoming that? Or are you just kind of chipping away and adding brick by brick day or day or day after day? Uh, honestly, the best way to do it is just to do it and, and show people that this is possible. You know, um, I'll take an example from Gold's Hydrogen. Um, we work on that for about three years in the lab, you know, in, in training the microbes to eat the oil and produce hydrogen at the bottle test, sand pack, core flood testing, right? And it worked. So then we took it to the Permian Basin. We did two wells, kind of huff and puff, injected the microbes, shut in the well. After four days, opened it. Compared to the baseline, we saw this big increase in hydrogen production. So that was like, okay, this is microbes are doing at this, you know, from quality point of view, they are doing the job in the soft surface, right? But that wasn't uh, meant to be commercial production of hydrogen, right? Mm. What we're doing now, uh, we're about to actually deploy in the field where we have injectors and producers, uh, that whole exercise is going to create, you know, 20 to 30 tons of hydrogen per day which is enough to establish an offtake, right? And uh, once we scale that, that is uh, because the cost estimate for us is less than a dollar per, per kilogram, right? Compared to when you're talking about green hydrogen, we're talking about three, four or five dollars plus, right? Yes. So once we scale these projects, um, it really, then you just can't ignore them, right? Because it, it, it will just scale. And, um, then I think that would drive a lot of the conversations in a bigger way in, in wanting to understand, well, how does this work? Right. Um, but in the meantime, I mean, things like this, I think, um, we're involved in a lot of different associations, uh, with the industry, outside the industry, uh, just talking about the benefits of synthetic biology and biotech, industrial biotech outside of traditional use cases um in medicine and such into this new use cases like in energy transition decarbonization and yeah. climate if you will is is important but like i said at the end of the day you just have to show that the proof is is in the pudding you know and and go and deploy these things and that's really what um myself and the rest of the team is really excited i mean this United announcement that we had, right? Uh, we had a meeting this morning, just like looking at the engineering package for the plant and site wow. selection and, and like what EPC we're going to involve and things like that. And that's really where things go from idea to paper to, uh, starting to building, you know, and, and wow. that's really the exciting part and the best way to show what's possible. Yeah. You must be fired up. And so. Where are you able to disclose where that plant's going to be, roughly? In, not at the moment, because there's a few moving parts. Um, what I would say is we would love to just have more things in Texas and in, in around Houston area. Um, also, because a lot of our partners uh, already have infrastructure here, as yeah. including RFP, of course. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we're keeping an eye on, in other options as well. Very cool. Very cool. We'll, uh... I'm looking forward to seeing some content and some some tours and some video footage of when that thing gets kicked off. That's that's huge, man. That's that's really exciting. Um, 
Something else I wanted to touch on, I, I know we're coming up close to, to our time, but I looked at your mission statement and it emphasizes bringing profitable solutions with a positive environmental impact. Can you elaborate on some scenarios or, or more around that where the pursuit of profitability has actually enhanced or could enhance environmental objectives rather than compromise them? hundred percent. And, and, you know, when we started the conversation around why I was going to DC and uh, utilization as opposed to sequestration, it, it all the same thing. I think if we focus on, and instead of asking for handouts and credits and things like that, if you just focus on ways to make the, the economical solution also be sustainable, then naturally everyone just will do more of that, you know? And, and I think that is really the way to scale. Uh, sustainable solution is to is to make them economical, mm -hmm. um, and so for us in you know in the projections that we have the amount of CO two that we could utilize that you see some of those on the website, all of those have that undertone of these. The first bar is that they have to be economical solutions. Um, the part that is a bit of a moving target is that let's say um, for sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, project, right? We um, compete with basically soybean oil, right? Um, because from soybean oil or our eco to oil to the final staff, that's the off the shelf easy process. Yeah. Um, but the price of soybean oil, there's a price today, you know, um, about 70 cents and it's kind of increasing, but that, that could change throughout time, right? Because, um, everyone wants the same thing. And then within that category, uh, there's also used cooking oils, animal fat, believe it or not, it's, it's also a, it's a big deal in, in like securing more oils to, to make sustainable aviation fuel. Mm -hmm. So as long as we could compete with that price, we're in business, you know, right. and there, there, there is uh, factors that is helping in that people are getting more educated about the environmental impact that, um, you know, agriculture drive biomass could have, and that's not trivial. Uh, what I mean by that is, uh, we started off with this, okay, if it's not oil and gas, it's good. That's where the conversation was like five years ago, even before that, right? A lot of the environmentalists. Now what we're realizing is like, well, the only problem with oil and gas was the emission part. Right? So it was this kind of linking, just focusing on the CO2. Now, if you want to um, use a different source of feed stock, let's say biomass is a big one, right? Uh, people assume that that's better than oil and gas, but with biomass, now they also have to look into, well, where are you getting the biomass from? Yeah. Uh, how much water was used? How much land was used? Uh, did you cut down, is this just like wood waste? Or did we also have to do some deforestation in the process? <laughs> and how do you, yeah. how do you compare uh, you know, the, the detriment of deforestation compared to saving whatever many tons of CO2 emissions, you know, that's a, that's a very hard question, like in terms of figuring that out. Yeah. And that's what I meant. Like, I think, uh, within the next few years, we may have more of a holistic approach that doesn't just index around carbon emissions, but also includes the environmental impact. Mm -hmm. And what, what we're doing here is we're saying, okay, with oil and gas and biomass, there's the emission issue. There is the environmental issue. What would never have an issue? Waste. Any kind of waste 
extreme. Uh, CO2 being a perfect example. There's other okay. sorts of words as well that um, we could reinvent and, and reuse in the process. And that's where those microbes come in. Because Got some it. of these microbes exist, they could use different streams of waste. Right. No, you bring up a, a, a great point with regards to, to just increasing the, the boundary of an analysis when looking at the energy output or the emissions, because you have to consider the energy input and what, and all the other externalities that come along with, you know, producing X energy. Uh, so again, the, the fact that you're thinking through all of this, uh, I think is, is, is giving you that advantage or at least helping you along the way. Um, again, I, you know, this, we blew through this episode. Um, it's just, I can't believe we're already up for time. But in the interest of time, uh, could you please describe to the folks where uh, they can connect with you? Um, I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously, and your website. But besides LinkedIn, the website, is there anywhere else that you're producing content or any other good resources that folks can uh, check out? Um, right now, I would say, yeah, LinkedIn and the website. Is, we have a Twitter as well. I'm not very active right now. Okay. Um, but we do have some exciting things in the work. Um, I'm trying to create a different channel for marketing and messaging as well. So keep an eye for that. And probably we'll just channel those through our LinkedIn. And Perfect. maybe we'll add more to our YouTube channel. There's already a good amount of content, I would say, there from okay. previous presentations and such. But for me personally, LinkedIn is the best way to connect. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure and put the link in the show notes. And uh, again, really appreciate you joining me today. And for everyone out there, uh, please subscribe, leave a review, and always make sure we're approaching energy with a radically open mind. Be kind and always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Have you ever thought about what a podcast could do for your B2B business? Well, you might be surprised by the benefits it could offer. Firstly, podcasts provide an amazing opportunity to establish your brand as an industry thought leader. By sharing your insights, experiences, and expert opinions, you position yourself as an authority, gaining the trust and the respect of your audience. Secondly, hosting a podcast is a fantastic way to engage your customers on a deeper level. It's not just about promoting your products and services, it's about providing value through engaging content, fostering strong relationships, and loyalty among your listeners. Oh, and did I mention networking? Yes, that's a huge part. Podcasts are an incredible networking tool. When you interview guests from your industry, you're not only creating valuable content, but you're also building relationships that can lead to future partnerships and collaborations. But we know starting a podcast can feel daunting. I've had several people reach out to me lately asking how to create a podcast, and that's where I'm going to try and come in and help. I'm here to help you navigate the podcast world. Reach out to me for a 15-minute call where we can discuss your podcasting ambitions. Whether you're starting from scratch or simply looking to improve your existing show, I'm here to help. And guess what? I have a playbook too, a step-by-step -step guide to launching a successful podcast, and I can't wait to share it with you. This playbook has everything from topic brainstorming to technical setup to effective promotion strategies, all the essentials for a thriving podcast. So why wait? Get in touch today and let's embark on this podcasting journey together. After all, your voice deserves to be heard. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.